left to enter into conversation because I knew those people were, were in many cases, on the outside looking like everything was okay, just like Bob did in college. But inside, they were eating away with this pain and struggle. So, I enjoyed that so much that after a while, I began to think, I began to think about maybe I ought to do it more. Maybe I ought to make that my vocation. You see, what was amazing to me at that time is that people started actually telling me that. Bob, you're really good at this. You need to do this more. You're doing it as an avocation. You ought to think about doing it as a vocation. And they'd start giving us money. I mean, I didn't, we weren't asking for any money. They just started giving us money. People that I was working with, and, and it was amazing. I didn't, I mean, it was like, no, Bob, you're teaching us. You're helping us. You ought to be, we ought to be supporting you. And so... I began to think about doing that, and, sh- and after <laughs> two years of wrestling through that, studying everybody in the Bible, and I'm not kidding, everybody in the Bible that was called to do anything, I finally came to the conviction one day that Jesus really wanted me to go into the ministry as a vocation. But I had a wrestling match with him that day. <coughs> you see, he, you know, he's the chief talent officer. I love to say that kind of jokingly. And he's saying, Bob, this is where I want to dispense your gifts and abilities. But I said to him, Jesus, the problem is, if I do that, immediately the first question, every man walk, you know, you meet, hey, hey, my name's Bob, Kevin, what's your, 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 who, what's you? And, and the first thing he's going to ask me is, what do you do? And I'm going to say, I'm a pastor. And Kevin's going to say, nice talking to you. Or at least he'll act that way. And so, Jesus, who's going to reach those people? I mean, I literally had this conversation. And in my mind, clearly, Bob, you're going to train the people to reach those people. Now, that, what does that mean? That's Ephesians 4.11, isn't it? Ephesians 4.11, it says that God calls up leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So Jesus is saying, Bob, you're going to raise up leaders and people to do that, not you you're going to give yourself to helping other people do that. Okay? You're the one that's in charge? I'll submit to that. Now, that was 1985. So for the last 39 years, I've been doing that. I've been training people in evangelism. I don't know that that, well, I'll just put it this way. (coughs) It's been my honor to watch people become freed up to be laborers in the harvest out of this bondage and fear about evangelism. Now, that didn't come at the beginning. In the beginning, I've done, I've done, I don't know there's, I don't want to say it that, that's too strong. I've done street evangelism. I've done door-to-door evangelism. I've done uh, mural evangelism out in the park, taking people to there. We used to go down to UT football games. There'd be 30,000 people in, out in front of that stadium for the f- six hours ahead of time. They're just sitting there doing nothing. And we would, I would, we would get a group of our people and we'd say, okay, just start to engage with people and ask if you can ask them some questions about their spirituality. And sure enough, people are doing nothing. They'll talk. 
And we get into sometimes 30, 40 hour-long conversations with total strangers about where they were spiritually. And amazingly, in those times, there were actually people that trusted Christ. So I've done lots of different and and kinds of evangelism and trained people in a lot. What I'm going to share with you over these next three sessions, I think are the most important things that I've learned in the 37 years that I've been training people in this. I think you're going to be a little surprised at what you hear over the next three weeks. I'm not going to guilt you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to try to screw you into thinking up more that you need to be doing more than you're doing now because I'm, not, I'm convinced every single one of you knows you ought to be involved in evangelism. I'm pretty confident of that. If you've been around a church at all, you know you ought to be doing it. And yet every, most of the, almost everybody I talk to feels guilty about their lack of doing anything. Okay? So with that in mind, let's watch this. Last week, I actually shared this. Some of you may not have been here, but do you know what the number one, what the number one emotion that the New Testament associates with evangelism is? The answer to that is joy. There are two particular places I could point to. One is in Luke 15 and the parable of the two lost sons. The other is in John 4, which we're going to actually look at in this study and about how the sower and the reaper are glad together. And so the question, though, is if that's the intention that God has, why do we struggle so much in experiencing that? So what I'd like you to do at your tables is I want you just to discuss with each other which of the emotions could you identify with and why, and which emotions would you like to experience? So you just take a couple minutes and discuss that at your tables, okay? Particularly the why on the which emotions you've you've. Uh, you experience. Let me ask this. Let me ask the group if if I could. Let me ask the group. Why do you think? What were some of the reasons? Were the main reasons you heard for for the reasons? What were the main reasons you heard for these emotions? Fear. Of? Did you get past, that past fear of what? Rejection. Is that what I heard? Okay. Looking like a fool. Anything else? Fear of forgetting everything you learned. <laughs> Fear of forgetting. <laughs> I wake up with that every day. So. Not having all the answers. Okay. 
not having all the answers. Pushes the fear. Okay. Pressure pushes the field. Th fear. Thanks, Herb. Anything else? Uh huh. <laughs> Sounds like you. Okay. Yep. How many of you have ever been exposed to the teaching that you ought to share the gospel with just about anybody you are with for very much longer than five to ten minutes? Uh, I have. I've listened to those. I've watched men that, that and women that espouse that. And and what does that generally produce in the people that hear it? Guilt. Guilt. Because guess what? We don't do that. And we assume that's a standard now that we're supposed to affirm to. Or to Carrie's point, did everybody did all hear what, what Carrie experienced? So to Carrie's point, there is one way to do that, and you've got to, you've got to match that way, even if it doesn't match who you are as a person. You got to feel like you've got to become this extroverted used car salesman who can walk up to anybody, strike up a conversation, and close the deal. And if you don't match that, my goodness, you're in total awkwardness. And then that, then the, then the sense is something must be wrong with me that I don't feel comfortable doing this. So my hope is in this time we could take all of the experiences of that side, the left-hand side, and watch God move every single one of us to more of this side. Now, how is that going to happen? How do you change what we actually experience to what God intends? And I think this has got to happen. We need renovation. We need to have the renovation of our hearts, not just what we think, but deep within us, the lies that we need to tear down the lies that we hold about evangelism that bind us up because that's what lies do. And we need to build up the truths surrounding evangelism because truth sets us free. So we all have this constructed thing in our heart called evangelism, and it's built with a bunch of lies. And every one of those lies is keeping you and me from enjoying and, ex and experiencing all that God wants us to with regard to evangelism. And unfortunately, as Carrie said, the church has propagated a lot of those lies. And it makes me really angry when I run into people like that. Because what my experience has been is that when I see people go through this renovation project, I watch them all of a sudden for the first time in their lives believe God can use them in evangelism. I will never forget when Walter and Lynn walked up to me 
they were involved in a outreach golf tournament that we did in East Tennessee. And Walter and Lynn had been trained in campus evangelism that to be an evangelist, you had to be this, what I just said, used car, like Carrie, you got to pound it in people. And Walter was a servant. He was a gifted servant. And he used all of his gifts to help support this evangelistic effort that we did once a year that involved multiple churches, and we would just have somebody talk about their journey with Christ. And non-believers were inviting non-believers, and it was a fun thing to be a part of. And Walter watched that, and he came up to me one day after we had this incredibly um, logistically challenging way we did it. We did all kinds of innovative stuff, and he and Lynn, they just they pulled me aside, and they said, they just tears are pouring down his face, and he said, Bob... I cannot thank you enough for giving me a chance to learn that God could use me in evangelism. I'll never forget that. So how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, first you need to recognize, what's a myth? A myth is a widely held but false belief or ideas that binds our efforts and it produces the negative experiences and emotions that we just described. That's what a myth is. What's a truth? A truth is that which is true in accordance with fact or reality, a fact or belief that is accepted as true. That frees our effort and produces the positive experiences and emotions we long for. And Jesus spoke about this very clearly in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, he said to his disciples, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Set you free. From? From bondage. Of? And so what we've got to do in this time is be asking God, Lord, would you unveil in our hearts the lies that we believe? that we could turn away from them because that's what repentance means. Repentance means not tearfully being sorry about something. Repentance is metanoia in the Greek, which means meta is change, noia is mind. It means changing your mind. So what we're going to do in these next three weeks is ask God to bring us to the place of changing our minds so that our hearts could be set free. Okay? That's what repentance is. So we, re- we reject the lies that bind us up and we embrace the truths that set us free. So that's the goal of engage. Now, what I want you to do in your group is I want you to look at this list of myths or, or are they truths. And I want you to discuss in your groups, which of those are myths and why, and which of those are truths, if at all. So in your groups now, do that same thing. Talk about what are, what are these are myths and which of these are truths, if any, on either side. Discuss that. What do you think? Okay, now I got to ask you, 
Tell me what what do you think? What do you think is a truth up on the screen? What do you think is a truth up on the screen? You all said none. Uh, who? Somebody said. What else did you say? The last one is a truth. Any other truths that you think? Second to last one. Yeah, Michael. Okay. First and last. Especially after Chris's sermon. What, what was the point of that? Okay, any, any, anybody disagree that one is a truth? Anybody disagree that one is a truth? And if you do, why? So you all said none. Why do you think one is not a truth? Hold on. Jeff, I'll come back to you. Yeah. Jesus gave everybody the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like Billy Graham yeah. or the world evangelist. You know, we all think of it that way instead of we scale it down to us. Yeah. And that's what Jesus, that's what he was preaching. Okay. Yes, Beth. Can everybody hear Beth's question? Okay. Uh, Jeffrey, you were going to say something, then we'll, get, then we'll come back, back here. I'm come back to your thing about whether or not that's a truth or a myth. In our uh, reading tonight, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into... He cheated and went ahead. Did you notice that? No, no, but okay. So I would, yeah, I, I think I would say, number one, looks like a truth, but is a myth. Because I would say it this way. Jesus has ordained that the way he's going to reach people normally is through other people sharing the gospel. So normally a myth, but it could be a truth. It's what? He does, but he wants me to. He, that's another way of be, better saying. Did you ever hear what Michael said? But because Jesus has reached out to some people and they've come to Christ in a very supernatural, un, uh, an untypical way. So he can do whatever he wants to do. But he has ordained exactly what you said. This way of doing that is through people. That's what his sovereign will ordained. So he almost, in essence, the normal way that he intended was constrained to move through people. Okay? Any, now, what are, any, anything else? Any comments on any other myths? Yes, Liam. So with the first story again, I would also like to add that going back to one of Chris's servants, God invites us to join his work. That's exactly right. He didn't, and so if you were to say in eternity past, he didn't need us. 
but he invited us, and therefore we are a requ- I don't I, I don't want to be careful. We're almost a required part of the process, if that if you were to say it that way, the way he's ordained it. Okay, now what I'd like for you to think about for just a moment and collectively together is what questions or what are do you wonder about with regard to evangelism about whether it's a myth or not. What, what, what ideas do you have about evangelism that you wonder if they're a myth or a truth? Because, see, men and women, what did I say right at the beginning? Every one of you has got beliefs about evangelism. The question is whether they're myths or, or, or truths. You have beliefs. And I just wonder if you, like, well, does God, what would maybe be an idea that you wonder well, do I have to know all the answers? Maybe that's pretty obvious, but some of you say that that's my fear, and my fear is I don't know all the answers. So what might be an idea that you wonder? If it's a, yeah, Dale. If I could become a stumbling block for anybody ever again. Okay, great. Did everybody hear that? Could I actually not be a helper, but a stumbling block to somebody coming to become a, uh, becoming a believer in Christ. What do y'all think? Is that a myth or truth? A person could, we'll state it this way, a person could be a stumbling block in somebody coming to Christ. Okay, why do you think that'd be true? I'm not disagreeing, I'm just unpack that. Why? Ulterior motives, okay. Yeah, Jeff. Okay. False teaching. He's going to take your talent if you don't use it so in that way. I've never had much use for him the rest of my life. Huh. <laughs> and so that turned me off to, I wasn't kidding when you and I were talking, that this goes back to my days in a small Baptist church, and I'm not against the Baptist. I, I'm, I'm not against anything that brings the gospel clear to people. Clarity is huge for me. But I really did uh, sit under men who did conversion by concussion. And they beat on you until you said, okay, I've tried my fingers loose from the pew and I'm running down front. And so that became a a stumbling block to me, as some of you said. And I I think that took me a long time to hear grace and understand grace. And so that that comment about my talent, that's more like, wait a minute, I didn't feel guilty. You're making me feel guilty because I I don't want to do something. And so was I... Yeah, yeah.
if I, uh, you, you know, this is, um, people used to come to me when I was a pastor, growing, uh, pastoring in East Tennessee, in some of the same environments that Michael's talking about, and they would say to me, how come you don't give an invitation after each uh, message? And I said, well, I do give an invitation when I think it's something the Spirit of God has impressed upon me to do that, but I don't do that every time. And, they were, and several of them said to me, what if they walked out the door of this church and were hit by a car and killed? Their eternity was on your head. I said, if I believe that, I'd do one of two things. I'd either lock the doors and nobody could ever leave or I'd kill myself. And I was dead serious. That is weight I cannot bear. Paul said he would be willing to go to hell so that some of his brothers could come to Christ. I don't know that I'd be willing to do that. I've, I've thought about that. I don't think so. Fortunately, that choice isn't mine. Jesus went to hell for me. Amen? But I could never bear the weight of thinking somebody's eternal destiny is on my shoulders. If I make a mistake, they're going to hell. So tonight, I think you're going to see a very different perspective in, Mar in Matthew chapter 9. So it's a great transition to our passage. What I want you to do is I want you, in looking at this verse these verses, I want you, well, let me, let me do this first. Let me give you some background on this passage because I think it's really important. What do you know about Matthew? Tax, what do you know about tax collectors? They were despised. Why were they despised? They took people's money, fairly or unfairly. They extorted from people. And they became wealthy as a result of that. And they were, the best I can, the best analogy is I've come up with is they're like the mob. The mob would go around to businesses and say, we'll protect you, but you've got to pay us enough money. So who wanted to hang out with the mob? Prostitutes, drug addicts. And that's why they formed Las Vegas. Las Vegas was formed so they could hang out together, literally, and have entertainment come there. Nobody wants to hang out with the mob, except other mobs and what? Yeah, it was. Okay. Now, he's outwardly, very, Matthew's very outwardly successful, but he's broken. How do we know he's broken? Because when Jesus, what was that? I missed that. The chosen. The chosen. <laughs> we know he's broken. He, we don't know if he's autistic like, uh, like he is in the, in the, in the, in the, in the show, but yes, Kathy. Everybody hear that? How do we know he's broken? Because Jesus said, come follow me, and he left it all. Now, I think obviously he had exposure to Jesus way before that time, or he wouldn't even know what he was being invited into, but he was willing to leave it all because of the life that Jesus was inviting him to follow him on the way. Now, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he gave two synopsises of Jesus' life. One is in Matthew 4, and I want you to listen to and, and be looking at this passage and listen to the Matthew 4 passage. 
This starts in 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What were the similarities between Matthew 4 and this passage? Did you hear them? What, like, what, say them loud. He was traveling through all the towns and villages. That's exactly this. And the wording of this is, and, and what? But no, what's the similarity between four and, and this one and nine? First, he's tra- teaching in the synagogues. Proclaiming or, or announcing the good news of the king. Now, notice by the way, it's the good news of the kingdom. And you all, you all, you bore with me when I talked about the kingdom. And I'm going to tell you again, what was he announcing? The good news of the kingdom. This was his primary agenda. I'm inviting you, men and women, into the kingdom. I'm not telling you you're going to hell. I'm inviting you into the kingdom. We've missed that. We invite people into the kingdom, to this way that Jesus had of living in the kingdom. Similar, then what? Healing. And healing, exactly. The, the first sentence is exactly the same wording in the, in the, in the Greek and, and, and in both passages. In the four, he goes on to talk about how extensively the healing is going on and about how large crowds are following. Here he picks up something different. Notice what he says here. When he saw the crowds. Matthew brings this point up. We're going to talk about why he did that later. But Matthew saw this man do things that nobody had ever done. Large crowds. But when he saw, when Matthew said, Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. We're going to look at why. But now, that's the backdrop. Now, in your groups, here's what I want you to do. Whoops. Sorry. I want you to tell, you all were supposed to look at this passage. I want you to share with each other what insights into Jesus do you find here? What insights into Jesus does Matthew give here? Talk about that at your tables. What insights into Jesus does Matthew give here? Okay, you guys, Jesus mentions here the Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Jesus mentions the Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? How do you know? How do you know he is? I don't disagree with that. How do you know? How do you know he's not talking about God the Father? Okay. Carol said the, the, a great answer. He's the one sent him. In fact, in the very, if you read 10.1 and the rest of 10, you would find out Jesus, after he pray, tells them to pray that, he's the one that sends them out into the harvest. There are many other places that I can show you that Jesus is doing what he always does. 
referring to himself in the third person. When he talks about the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. He's talking about himself, but he's referring to himself in, the, in a different person. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, I, the, I, I'm the Lord of the harvest, but what does that mean about the harvest? What does it mean? Oh, let me ask, let me do this by way. How, give me some other titles for Jesus. Loud. Son of Man, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Messiah, Christ, Shepherd, Morning Star, Vine, Lamb, Lion, all kinds of names. And you probably have sung songs about every single one of those. How many of you have ever, ever sung a song about Jesus as the Lord of the Harvest? I never have. Never. This is like a hidden name of his, and it's not supposed to be. And part of it being hidden affects the way we look at the harvest, because what does it mean if he's the Lord of the harvest? He's the overseer of it. What else? Whose harvest is it? His. He owns it. He controls it. He runs it. He's like Nick Saban standing over the Alabama football team at the top of his tower, barking out orders. Now, he's the Lord of Alabama football. Same thing. He's in charge. Yes, Liam. Now, if he's the Lord of the harvest, does that mean that he's the bread of life? He's both. That's right. Now, think about that, though, for a minute. He owns the harvest. He oversees the harvest. He's in charge of the harvest. That brings us to the first truth. As the Lord of the harvest, Jesus brings about effective outreach, not us. What's sure? More just as important to recognize the truth as we've got to recognize the myth that the question that Dale brought up is based on. This is the myth that I find in myself and in everybody I've ever met that when I talk about evangelism, it's on me. They are, aren't they, Kevin? Kevin said all the fears are summed up in that right there. That means I can screw it up. If it's up to me, I can screw it up. If it's up to me, I can actually be successful. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you what a great evangelist I am. And, and men and women, I hate this, but I get letters from people all the time that are, all, that are overseas and that are do, involved in ministry. And anytime somebody starts to talk about all the work, that all the fruit that they've borne, 
I say in my soul, you are taking responsibility for something Jesus said is his. The fruit is his. Yes, Carrie. I think it goes back to your earlier story about the, if everything relied on you, you know, you're too. And it's, if everything about, you know, people's salvation relied on me, I am putting myself in the place of God. Everybody hear that? You have be, you put yourself in the Lord of the harvest place. You've made you the Lord of the harvest. Now, see, the problem with that is that's exactly what we do in America. We have a big view of ourselves and a small view of God. What about, what about like Billy Graham had himself in the church? Is that wrong? I mean, is that, how does that fit into your analysis? How do, okay, Kevin asked a question. How does 90,000 people and what? Well, like Billy Graham would announce the numbers, right? Okay. I, I would say if he says 90,000 people trusted Christ today, first of all, he doesn't even know that first. But he could say this happened, but what did, who in his heart is he attributing what happened to? I, knowing what I know about Billy Graham, he never thought it was up to him. He always knew it was up to God. He prayed that way. All you had to do was watch a crusade, and he'd give the simplest of message. Anybody that's ever spoken and, and done, like, study of homiletics, and, 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 they, and, th- and then they look at Billy Graham and go, there's nothing special about him hom- homiletically. He had a simple message, and I've, ta- I've, ta- I've, I've listened to people that had talked to him, and he knew he was simple because he knew it, but he knew it wasn't up to him. He, and, all, and like I said, all you got to do is watch, and he goes, come down, and the people just start flooding down. And you know that's the Spirit of God. Well, numbers matter, but who did the numbers? Not me, not Billy, not anybody. Now, we have a role. We're going to talk about our role, but our role is not to be the Lord of the harvest. That's not our role. Okay. Now, what I want you to recognize, though, is what did this do? Well, no, I want you to do this first. If you embrace the truth... Well, now, if you embrace the myth, first of all, that you're in charge, that effective outreach is up to you, how would that affect the way you do evangelism? And more importantly, if you rejected the myth and embraced the first truth, how would it impact your attitudes and, uh, about evangelism? I'm sorry that's not filled out there. Does everybody understand the questions? So discuss that now. How, more importantly, how would it change you if you really believed effective outreach was up to Jesus, not you? That's really the bottom line. Okay? How would that change you? Talk about that, please. How would it change you while I fix this? Okay, let me ask you this question now, if you don't mind. Seeing himself, seeing himself as the Lord of the harvest, what did Jesus do? Seeing himself as the Lord of the harvest, what do you see Jesus did in this passage? What did it move him to do? He had, say, go carry compassion and invitation to join the work. Okay. Okay. I 
disciples could see him and say, look, this is the harvest I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not just the wheat field people. Yeah. It's, it's people's people. So I want you to imagine now, and uh, just to piggyback those two thoughts of what Carrie and Michael said about the invitation or sending them out. I want you to imagine, remember Matthew 4, what did I say? Remember how he put it? He said, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, and he healed them all. I, I don't think, quite honestly, the chosen does a good job of representing this. I don't think there's enough people there. There were thousands of people he was healing at this time. The only thing that I think could get close to it is if Jesus walked into Charlotte and started healing and walked into both Novant and the atrium and healed every single person in that hospital, what do you think would happen? Well, what do you think would happen? If you've got cancer and you hear about that, what are you going to do? You're going to run down to atrium. All of a sudden, everybody that's got any sickness is going. There's thousands of people, and there is power flowing out of him that nobody had ever seen before. And now Jesus looks at the disciples and says, I'm going to include you. And he says, first thing you do is what? Pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. Into the har Pray that, God, that the, the Lord of the harvest would send out people like the Lord of the harvest, who could work the harvest. Now, that was mind-blowing to them. Much, And then, to actually then go do it like Michael said, to act, I, I like to joke, let's imagine Michael and I are, are we're the two that are going into a, the first town. And we've never done this before. We have no idea if this is going to work. And I'm going to look at Michael and I'm going to say, Michael, you go first, I'll pray this time. <laughs> I got a bad joke. <laughs> I mean, I can just imagine. They, they don't have any idea what, what they're doing. But the point is, before that, Jesus has come. He's engaged with these people. That's why this word matters to me. He is teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news, and he's involved with people because he has compassion on them. And why does he have compassion on them, according to the passage? Because what are they like? Sheep without a shepherd. Now, isn't that interesting that Matthew picked up on that? The good shepherd saw people as those without a shepherd. And they were what, according to the passage? What was true about them? Harassed and helpless. The word harass, these words are so beautiful. The word harass there literally meant to flay. And it, I, if you don't know what that means, that means to peel skin off of, of, of a body. And it could literally happen when that person's alive in, in those times. That's how distressed or harassed or in pain they were. And they were helpless. Do you know what happens when you... They're down, another way to, is to be cast down by that, to be cast down. You know what happens when you get a sheep on its back? Do you know what? Can't get out. It's helpless. That's what people are like. But men and women, just like Bob Schindler when I was a junior or senior in high school, I didn't look that way. The people in your spheres don't look that way. But Jesus tells you that's how they are. That's the myth. We think people don't really need the gospel. They look just fine. 
And the truth is, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost regardless of what they portray to you and me. And Jesus has this gut-wrenching, that compassion is literally to go, oh, when he saw him. It sucked the life out of him, if you could say it that way. It was like a sucker punch to them. Oh, he hurt so much for those people. But he said the answer is, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. Not that the Lord of the harvest would do this all, he would, but you would, he, he would send out workers. Now, here's what I want you to think about for a moment that this Lord of the harvest did. The son, for all of eternity past, had enjoyed the most wonderful circle of community that any being had ever experienced. He enjoyed the fellowship of the Father and of the Spirit. They had great, great love for each other. Their love was so great that it had to spill out into creation. Jesus, in that circle of community, was worshipped by 10,000 and 10,000 angels, declaring His holiness and worthiness. And yet Jesus left that circle of community and came into the world and contacted with and got in contact and engaged with people because he had compassion on them. And what he's asking is for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers from their circles of community into their normal spheres of, of, of contact and engage with those people. He's not asking you and I to do anything he didn't do at a much greater cost than any of us would ever experience. One of my friends used to talk about in his circle of community, he knew infinity. He knew nothing about finiteness. He never had experienced anything but infinity, and he took on a body. He took on finiteness. He put himself in a straitjacket all of the days of his life that he walked around here. Why? Because he was the Lord of the harvest. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Each of us has regular spheres, what I call spheres of contact. They're where you work, where you play, and where you live. Where you live could include also your family. I like to... But those are, those are arenas that you regularly are involved in, right? You don't have to go out of your way to think of those spheres, right? What I want you to do right now is I want you to, on your paper, write down some names of people that are in those spheres of contact that you know, that you want to start to pray that Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, would send workers to them. Okay, so do that right now, would you please? And again, your, your spheres are where you work, where you play, your recreation, and where you live, and that would include your family. Write down some names of people in those three spheres that you want to begin to pray 
that the Lord would send, of the harvest would send workers into that harvest. Yes. What about the church? As your sphere of contact? So if that would be where you live, if you want to include that, that there would be non-believers here, that would be part of where you live, I would say. David asked, what about the church? Are there people here that don't know Jesus here at the church? Right. Yeah, absolutely. That would be, be a good example of that. Okay, I want you to continue to think about that this week. And here's what I want you to begin to think also about with regard to those people that you just listed down. And this is particularly true if you have family members in that list. Jesus is calling each of us tonight to repent of the lie that it's up to us to reach people and to embrace the truth that he's in charge of reaching everybody on your page. Any pressure, any fear, any guilt that you have toward any of those people on that page, he's wanting to eliminate because you've taken up the role of the Lord of the harvest, as Carrie even mentioned. And he wants you to embrace tonight and worship him as the Lord of the harvest. Knowing that what does he feel toward those people on that list? Compassion. He wants workers to engage with them out of compassion and he will send workers to them i'll tell you more and more about my father and uh, as this we go through these three weeks my mom and dad did not know jesus they did not like hearing about jesus and so they said i don't we don't want to hear any more from you about it after i would talk to them after i came to christ so I said, well, can I continue to talk to you about what's going on in my life and men and women? I'll never forget the day. And they said, okay, I'll never forget the day I was praying and weeping over my mom and dad. And I said, Jesus, if you don't save my mom and dad, they're going to hell. And the Spirit of God went, well, duh. <laughs> what do you think I was saying there? I can't do this. I was feeling all the pressure of saving my mom and dad. If you don't say, if you don't do something, duh, Bob. So I began to pray this prayer. My mom and dad moved from Louisville to Hilton Head as a, and to retire, to retire so into a, a retirement community. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, uh, over 65. It was just down there. It was one of the plantations. They'd been there for a couple years, and the neighbors across the street sold their house, and a couple moved in across the house. My mom and dad had him over for a drink. The first night, the man's name was Phil, and you know what Phil said? Carl, I'd really love to talk to you about how I came to know Jesus. <laughs> that, you're going to have to wait for the rest of the class. <laughs> He, he didn't immediately say, oh, I repent in the name of Jesus, I'll become a follower. But Phil stayed as a friend of his. And God answered that prayer. And somebody else besides Bob began to talk to him about Jesus. Jesus has more compassion 
for every single one of the people on your list than you can ever dream. So particularly for your family members, do not think that's a lost cause. He wants you to honor him as the Lord of the harvest and believe what he says about those people, that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So tonight, we looked at this myth that effective outreach is up to us, and we looked at this truth that as the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ brings about effective outreach, not us. You see, God wants us to experience the joy that he has when it comes to outreach. But instead, our experience is often fear, pressure, guilt, shame, confusion. And the reason for that is, why? Why did I say? What is my contention? Why is there such a dissonance between what we normally experience, and what God wants us to experience. Because we do what? We believe myths that do what to us again? Bind us up. And we need to repent of those myths. And Jesus has brought us tonight right to the place of repentance about who really is in charge of this harvest. When we start to believe that, men and women, I can promise you, Jesus will honor your, his word and you will experience freedom in this realm. Um, it would be an honor if there's people on that list that you'd like for myself and Bruce Henning. Bruce, raise your hand. Bruce is joining me to help lead this this time. It would be an honor for us to pray with you about those people. So if you just slip me their name with maybe context, coworker, family member, something like that, I'd be glad to pray with you about that. Okay. Anybody see the movie um, Chariots of Fire? Raise your hand. Okay, the famous line from Chariots of Fire is, when I run, I feel his pleasure. He was doing what he was made to do. Do you know that uh, Eric Little, uh, and nobody understood that, by the way, on either side. His sister, who thought he should be more involved in Sunday schools and Christian activities, didn't get it, that he would waste his time running. And his Olympic supervisors thought he was wasting his time by not running on Sunday. Nobody understood him. Everybody thought he was wasting his life. He wins the gold medal in the 400, not his, not his best race. Do you know where he spent the rest of his life and died? China. China. You see, I, and I believe personally that he knew the pleasure of God just as much in China as he did when he ran. 
Because when you're walking in your unique purpose, you know the pleasure of God. When I look out at your faces and I watch your hunger to experience Jesus in this way, and I get the privilege to talk to you about these lies and the truths, I get to feel the pleasure of God. So thank you. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your compassion on each of the people in this room. We were distressed and downcast. We were lost, broken. Oh, my gosh. I look at that little 22-year-old boy that I was. What a mess. I know each person in this room could think about the same thing for them. And we're just grateful that you sent workers into our lives. And so I ask you, Jesus, to do the work that only you can do in our hearts, and that's to expose the, the lies and get, give us grace to repent and embrace the truth and set us free. And we do unitedly. Every name that's been listed down there tonight, Lord, we unitedly pray that you would, in obedience to you, at your injunction, that we would see you, that you would send workers into the lives of these people. We rejoice, we honor you, we worship you. This harvest is yours because you are the Lord of the harvest. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you all next week.